Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is the changing face of Philadelphia neighborhoods, thanks to gentrification. The result? Many urban centers are experiencing reverse migration. As more and more young professional couples are moving into the city, that's driving up the cost of housing. As more families of color move out, what can be done to get them to come back? You're not convincing. No. It doesn't have any <laughs> push factors. I need to be a part of this so that I can come back into the very same community where I grew up. Opening up the door so all can benefit from Philly's economic boom. She's a doctor and he's soon to be a lawyer. They're helping the underserved pay fees. Make a really large impact on someone's life by removing an institutional barrier. The fund they created to pay small bills with big impact. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus this week is gentrification. As you all know, neighborhoods like Point Breeze, Palton Village, University City, and other areas have seen sweeping changes in demographics and housing costs over the past few years, thanks to gentrifiers. They're coming in with all their money and they're making things shift, but there's a problem. In most cases, these gentrifiers are young, educated, white suburbanites. But now, there's a growing push to get more people of color who have made it to reinvest in their old communities. But there's reluctance. And so, some of the nation's largest urban minority-majority cities are seeing families of color move to the burbs in a sort of reverse migration. And trying to get these folks to stay is getting tougher. So how do you get more people of color to come back and reinvest in their low-income communities and take advantage of this urban economic boom? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Shalimar Thomas. She's the executive director of North Broad Renaissance. She's also a Philadelphia native who could very soon become a gentrifier herself. We have Cheryl Carlton. She's assistant professor of economics and director of the Villanova Women's Professional Network. We also have Tracy Hanton. She's a Philadelphia native who moved out of the city to the suburb of Willow Grove in Montgomery County. Welcome, ladies, to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Recent numbers on Philadelphia and some of America's largest urban centers show that there is a slow decline of some sorts or at least a decrease in percentage of the African-American population. Cheryl, can you talk about this? Some folks have called it bright flight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think one of the issues there as more and more young professional couples are moving into the city, that's driving up the cost of housing. And so for some people, if you want to own a house that's big enough, you can't afford them anymore. So pure economics is going to have them moving further out. And education, is that an issue? So I think that depending upon where you sit in life, right, um, mm-hmm. certainly schools are really important. So if you have children, I think one of the issues, like in Philadelphia, unless you can afford to pay for private education, that that's a really big issue for people with school-aged children is uh, looking at the price of housing. 
which can also move them out. You might be able to get a bigger house and not have to pay for education and get a nicer education. Tracy, you <laughs> moved from Philly. You were your Philadelphia person yes. moved to, moved out to Willow Grove. Tell me why. I moved out to Willow Grove because I got married. This was around 1996, and I had already had a son, and we were thinking about where would we like our children to be schooled at? Up until that point, my son had been in private Christian education. And so we wanted to get into a neighborhood that had um, a good school district. And so you like it out there? Love it. You do, You never look back? Never. Yeah. Um, I'm in a good school district, and I'm close to the Willow Grove Mall. I have easy access to the uh, Turnpike and access to get back in forth into Mount Airy, which is where I'm originally from, to see my mom and everything. So, And so, Shalomar, you're from North Philly, and you work for an organization that is helping to develop up North Broad Street, mm-hmm. and you want to invest in North Philadelphia. Why do you think it's important to do yeah, that? Yeah, so I, I think it, it started with um, being the executive director for the North Broad Renaissance and just seeing the change that's taking place on North Broad and also having the background that, you know, I'm from Broad and Airy. My, my parents, my mom still lives there. My brother still lives there. Um, and seeing that change take place and saying to myself, you know, how can I stop being, you know, someone from the outside looking in? And how can I um, invest back in this same community? I, I already feel honored that I'm working um, with a nonprofit that's supporting the very same neighborhood where I grew up. But where can I have a greater impact? And as you see developments going up, it's like, okay, I need to be a part of this so that I can come back into the very same community where I grew up, where it wasn't so bad, and have that extra impact and influence to turn it into something great. Yeah, and I wonder, though, it makes me wonder, like, why people of color, because a lot of times these houses are super cheap. You know, um, folks come from the suburbs, they move into areas that have, like, Kensington. Why, why won't black folks just... Do that right. and just move in and hold it down and wait for cha- things to change. You work so hard to get out the hood and, you know, you want me to go back after I didn't arrive. You know, I think that's hard. I think the topic about uh, the school systems and you wanting to be somewhere where it's a great school school system, that's that's a challenge for, for some people. And just the idea, I think that mental idea of going back, back it, it seems like you're going backwards when, you know, you move back to the hood. But it's really not. It's... You know, you can have that impact. You can actually look at that as an investment. And then as it relates to the schools, you can get involved in the school. You Parental involvement is the one of the, t- the yeah. best things that's going to lead to a successful school. You can get involved in that school and, and help turn it around. So I think we have to just change our mindset and thinking, you know, we're not those kids living in, a, in the hood anymore. We have some type of level of success that we can actually bring back to the communities where we where we came from and, and help build it up. And build it up. So what are the things that attract people who really had never lived in the urban centers and say now all of a sudden they want to come and, and invest and, and live, not just invest, but live in neighborhoods where with a whole bunch of people who've been living there a long time that absolutely don't look like them? I think that when you look about people moving, and this goes either way, mm-hmm. you have to look at both push and pull factors. So yeah. it's not just that I love this area. I have to think about, well, where am I coming from? So things push and things pull you as well too. So I think in a lot of the urban areas, especially for young couples or however you define couple, you know, the idea of having I'm going to want 
two jobs. They each want to have a job, and there's more professional jobs there for them. Mm. They like the things there are to do. You have a lot of cultural yeah. things mm-hmm. to do. You can get mm-hmm. around. Um, and again, it varies from area to area, but the idea of public transportation and being able to get around, I think, is great. And for a lot of younger ones, um, and sometimes it's wanting to give back to an area as well, too. I think there's that, maybe you'll call it service component, for lack of a better reason, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That they really, they love the cities. Mm-hmm. I think, like, you love the city, and mm-hmm. they want to be able to give as well, too, for, for doing that. But they are just starting building their communities. And so they don't have all those attachments all over like we do with families right. that you don't necessarily want to give up. And so they like all that idea of uh, being able to do that. So I think those are really – and you've got – especially if you think about Philadelphia. You yeah. have great culture. You have your near big hubs of transportation. We have a great mm-hmm. medical field. So those are really important. And the housing market can't be forgotten. Right. Um, I think an area like Kensington now, I think a lot of areas in Philadelphia are really expensive to move into. And those are areas maybe where they can start to – to live and start to afford places, right? Tracy, you grew up in Philly. What part of Philly did you grow up? Mount Airy. And that's a nice area. It's a nice area. My mother is still still there. And really? so you never thought about making Philadelphia the home for the for the growing family once you got no. married? Um, I made a decision to move. Um, I wanted, like I said, I wanted a better area, you know, for my son to grow up in, for us to really build our family and even after I got divorced, I still stayed in the same area. And I stayed there mostly because my youngest was in his nearing the end of school, and it just made sense to be there. I'm very active not only in the community in Abington, I'm very active in the community in Philadelphia. So I'm still in that part to be able to do that give back, mm-hmm. you know, and still live in the area that I want to um to be in it, and I don't feel any less removed. My sister's a school teacher. My mom was a school teacher, so I'm very entrenched in what's actually happening in Philadelphia. Best of both worlds. Yeah. yeah. So you're like in one of those <laughs> middle. You're pretty mm-hmm. close though, because Montgomery County, that area of Abington, is yeah. right on the edge. Yeah. So you moved out, but you didn't move like out, out. Yeah. But you know, but it took me a long time to because I was so entrenched in Philadelphia. It took me actually a, a few years before I actually got entrenched in the place that I lived. I still took my son to the barbershop in Philadelphia, went to restaurants in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I still did mm-hmm. everything for the for probably the first seven years or so, mostly in Philadelphia. And then it was, my son wants to do sports. He wants to do all these things. I need to be more in my yeah. community if I'm going to be there. So have so. you th- ever thought about investing like Shalomar talks about in these neighborhoods? You see the boom happening. I've, I've, I've thought about investing, and I think at some point that might be something that I would consider. But, again, not for me to live in. I have some other entrepreneurial pursuits <laughs> mm-hmm. that I want to be utilizing. So Yeah, and so Shalomar, when you hear this, as you make the pitch, because you yeah. even had to, like, talk your husband. Yeah, into, yeah, into yeah, because he and wasn't, he wasn't having I mean, it at all, yeah. Like I told my husband, he grew up in West Philly, you know, and so, and he, but he moved to the county and, and Lansdowne, and he got used to that life and that single home, and even when we were getting married, you know, and I was, I said, listen, I'm a Philly girl. We moving to Philly, like the home. <laughs> the home will be the it's home will be in Philly. You know, it's just it's no compromise on that. And so, even with this this conversation, it was like, listen, 
this is an up and coming area and we need to think about investing in this. And, and, you know, he went, you know, no, no. And I said, listen, don't be mad when we look at this area years from now and we could have purchased a home for or a condo for 250000 and now it's worth $2.5 million or something. Yeah. You know, and to and put it in those kind of terms, now he's thinking like, well, maybe this this is something <laughs> we could do. And then to say again, you know, it's not like you don't know how to live in the hood. You know how to live in these areas and, you know, you just have to deal with it for a little while. But we have the time. And I think that's that's and that your to your point, time is actually mm-hmm. um, important. But we do have the time to invest in our communities. We do have the time to yeah. do something to build it up. If we can invest in, you know, we, we attend 500 networking events a year, you know. We're always out doing something with work or church. Or, then we can take 10% of that and say, how can I help the community, this yeah. community get better? I and, and I like, I live in, I'm a city dweller. I love living in the city. So I can't imagine living in the suburbs. I grew up in a suburb for my high school years and I I hated it. I mm-hmm. was always in the city cuz you know whatever. But I want to say that statistics show that um certain neighborhoods gentrify faster than other neighborhoods. So like if if a if it was a predominantly white poor neighborhood, it gentrifies faster than a a, a predominantly black neighborhood where gentrifiers come in regardless, you know, of the race of the gentrifier, mm-hmm. right? But then Black neighborhoods with black gentrifiers tend to change slower. And Germantown Mm -hmm. is an example. Like the turnover is slower for whatever reason. And so I want to talk about that issue. I mean, do you think that that could possibly impact whether or not, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, people of color see the gentrification in certain neighborhoods. They want to live in Germantown. They say, man, Germantown still hasn't changed. It's been 15 years. What makes a... A, a, a community sort of gentrify fast and and it, it does that um, sort of have any determining factor as to whether or not people want to choose that neighborhood to move to and to, to see the flip. So you want to think about people moving back in. I mean, another thing yeah. to think about is people who are already there staying there. So yeah. That's another way yeah. of thinking about that. Mm-hmm. As so again, I think there's a lot of that push-pull factors. Right? It's not just the pull, it's the push. So you don't have anything pushing you out. So you're happy even though there's a lot in the city to kind of stay where you are. Exactly. So it depends. You know, people value different things. So what is it that you want? And it's really hard to say for mm-hmm. different people what they value in living in an area. And um, maybe if they go back and they see it looks just the same to them, they don't think of it as having gentrified that much or that different, right? They're yeah. Looking, maybe they're looking for something different. And so what are the push that. factors? You mentioned we talked about what pulls people. What, right. what pushes So you can them. think about pushing. So you can think about people either pushing out of the city or pushing into the city. So pushing out sometimes. You give a great example of education, right, mm-hmm. or maybe housing prices or maybe issues with transportation, whatever it is that you want to mm-hmm. have. Those are going to push you. Or if you're in the suburbs, I'm thinking about you. What did you say? You like the city. You don't like being in the suburbs because you like the culture, the things that are going on, the things that are happening. And so it's really hard to say for any one person what would be, but you have to think about that. You have to think about who do we want to bring in? Mm-hmm. We want to bring in young families in the city. Then we have to think about what is it that they would want to have there. So good schools, good playgrounds, mm-hmm. good community where you can feel safe. You can let your kids out. You can feel that they can you know, play and you don't have to worry about right. crime. Right. There's a lot of things that you have to think about if you want to get them come in. So mm-hmm. housing prices are certainly one, but you have to think about that whole. But even millennials who <laughs> were gentrifiers, they have a couple kids, they get the kids to that kindergarten and, 
age and they and they bounce. I really think schools mm. are a really big yeah. deal for some cities like Philadelphia has real issues with the schools. And so I think that is really a big issue in Philadelphia. And that was your big issue. Yeah. Because you were sending your you were paying for your kid to I go to school. Paying. I was paying. And now your kid goes to school for free. Well, yeah. But now I'm an empty nester because yeah. he's 19. 19, so. yeah. yeah. But you you were able to get public as public school yeah. education for your son. Whereas mm-hmm. when you lived in Philly, you had to pay for it. Yeah. Was that a big how how much of a determining factor was that versus just being that probably at that particular time, that probably was the biggest factor was not only do we have a seven year old, but what are we going to do with the children that we plan to have afterwards? Mm -hmm. How are we going to really make sure that they get a good quality education? Yeah. So if you have somebody who is really wealthy, right, then they can afford to do that or because right. they send on that. But if you really want to have, you think about middle class uh, communities, that's a really big issue, I think. that. Uh, or or even, you know, low income. You know, I raised both. Of, I've, I've been in Philly all my life. I sent both of my sons to either um, public or, or charter school. And, yes, my son did go to Central, but my but before that they were in charter schools. And, you just have to, and that's why I'm a strong advocate of parental involvement because I know. And you know the system, right? Shalomar, I do, so I do. Sure but that was that, that was because I was involved. Cross, you know, that's yeah. why I was involved, and the teachers knew me. You know, I did my email introductions, and I, you know, I went to PTA meetings, even if I was the only one there. Well, that gives me extra time with the teachers that I need to, you know, talk about what what my boys are doing. So, um, you you can figure out the system, and I understand people don't feel like that. I understand that too, but. That goes back to creating this kind of um, group that can move into a community and say, hey, um, instead of investing $800 a month into private school, let's form this PTA um, at this school and and put some of that money into a PTA and help the school with funding issues. And let's organize in that way. So there are opportunities that we can do in, in these positions where we are right now. Yeah. And I know that Philadelphia can afford to not let this progress of gentrification happen. Oh, yeah. This has been great mm-hmm. for the city of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Cheryl, th- th- this is the oh, best yeah. thing. I have a daughter mm-hmm. who lives in Northern Liberties, and just in the few years they've lived there, I have just been amazed every time I go there how much construction, and then they keep telling me how much the new places <laughs> cost, too. Um, it is, I mean, in terms of from the economic perspective, right, that must bring in a lot of tax dollars to the city. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know if they're giving them any deals to build there, but um, that is really, and there's a lot of restaurants going up around in Northern Liberties. I mean, I happen to know that area because she lives there. I mean, in terms of that. So the city really has to think about what are we going to do. And I don't know how Philadelphia works as much, but I know in some places, you can have a bigger impact on elementary schools because they usually tend to be more neighborhoody mm-hmm. than as your children get older. And then you think about that's a little bit different. Yeah. So I don't know. I know I've known people even in the suburbs who live in some areas where maybe they aren't as great for high school, but then they'll move for high school because right. the elementary mm-hmm. schools are better mm-hmm. because there's more parental direct involvement. It's just another model, I think, of thinking yeah. about schools. Right. Maybe we don't have to have. And I, I've noticed that with a lot of the gentrifiers, people coming together, they form a CDC. People are very specific. Mm-hmm. And in the neighborhoods, I mean, I've seen neighborhoods turn. I've been here 11 years and I've right. seen neighborhoods turn. And it's you, you, once you know a CDC is there, you know it's going to be changed. 
Once right. you know folks are showing up to the meetings and they get together, they raise money for the school and everything just sort of like blossoms for it and make people clean up. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, you know, the neighborhood is better and more people are moving in. So what would get you to move back? <laughs> at, at, at this stage, probably not anything. <laughs> I um. Because there's a lot of empty nesters in the burbs yeah, who are yeah. now eyeball their eye in city life, and that's the other that's the other flux of folks we have moving to Philly. We have young folks, and mm-hmm. we have empty nesters. And you know, who I spend go to enough the time in the city. I work in the city, yeah. So my tax dollars are in the city. That wage tax is real. Y- yes, yes, it is. It's very real. <laughs> that's another big. Piece. But I'm, I'm in the city. Yeah. I work in the city. And then when I'm done with whatever community work I'm doing in the city, volunteering, my church is considered partly in the city. And then I get to kind of go back, take my respite out in the suburbs and continue doing my work out in the suburbs because I'm active out there as well. So You're not convincible. No. doesn't have any push factors. Now, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't invest in, um, you know, building up a community or something. That doesn't mean I wouldn't invest. Because, again, the way that we give back, um, when I look at give back, I think about what God is really calling me to do in terms of my give back. And yeah. so if that's what he lays on my heart to do, then that's the area where I'm going to put the concentration in, put that effort in. Right now, it's my community and with one of the organizations that I work with, we're actually going back and working in my old elementary mm-hmm. school in Mount Airy. So that's going to be um, great because being able to keep that neighborhood growing and flourishing as well. Yeah, and she brings up a good point because the other side of gentrification, of course, is the communities that feel like they are being pushed out. And when we're coming in, we and back into our own old communities, I'm going to use myself as an example you know the community, you know the needs. So it's not from this this outside perspective, and you can kind of support those needs and support that community as well. So my mom is still there. So I'm talking to my mom like, Mom, you, you know, don't sell your house. Don't do this. <laughs> and so you know she's talking to other people too, you know, because that's how the community works. You know, yeah. she's on the steps. She's, she's talking to, you know, my daughter does this, and she said, you know, don't sell your house. You know, So it's that type of um, community yeah. that you can go into as well to support even those who are kind of concerned about um, getting pushed out and helping them, um, bringing those resources and that information to exactly. them as well. Exactly. It's the push factors, the pull factors, all of those things. But because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. What would it take financially <laughs> to get folks who were from Philly moved out to move back into the city to, to gentrify and become a part of this wave and take advantage of this boon mm-hmm. and benefit? It has to be affordable, first of all. So you think about housing, it really has to be affordable for them. And yeah. being able to, to get around. I think transportation is really a big issue, right? And being able to, if you have a car, where am I going to park it? I want to take my kids to do things. Those are important. You know, when you think about community, it's really important. I think that's one of the reasons you stay where you are. So we have to build up this idea that, you know what, you can have a community here. And we have community. You're not moving into this city. It's going to be sterile and no one's going to talk to you. Tracy, do you think? I'm very concerned about parking. I think affordable housing, last but not least, and safety. I was going to say safety. People want to feel like they they are secure. And I know... Right now, we're in this kind of iffy kind of climate with road rage and all of those different things. But people still want to know that 
when I walk out my front door, I still feel safe. And so make your pitch, Shalimar. You yeah. trying to get more folks to jump yeah. on that <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would absolutely um, say that if, if you are in the community organizations like the North Broadway Renaissance, you know, get involved and get the information you need. We have, we produce something every year called the State of North Broadway Report where we're looking at friends and we're looking at housing markets and we're looking at all the things like like you ladies mentioned in safety. So um, get involved and know about that CDC or that business improvement district or that special service district yeah. that's organizing in your community. And we want Northbrook commu- communities involved. We want your voice. We need your voice and we need you at the table so you can understand what's going on in the community and how you benefit from it and how you can be impacted from it. 60%, about 60% of um, the people who own homes or are, or live on North Broad are actually renters. Imagine when 60% of those renters get pushed out because they can't afford to rent there anymore and what that looks like. So it's about getting them the information. Thank you to Shalomar Thomas. Thank you to Cheryl Carlton. And thank you to Tracy Henton for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. you. Next up, a doctor and a lawyer who use their wedding to raise money to help the underserved. You really use small sums, make a really large impact on someone's life. The fund they created and the small bills they pay to have a huge impact. We'll be right back. This is a Flashpoint podcast where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philly residents hot under the collar is when a little thing like owing 50 bucks stops you from doing big things like going to the doctor or how about getting off probation? Well, a young couple made headlines recently because they saw this problem and decided to fix it. With me in the studio to discuss their effort is Elton. And on the phone, we have his lovely wife. Pratusha, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Congratulations on getting married recently. That's pretty awesome. That's a big Thank deal. You. Pratusha, you, you're a doctor. Elston, you're a law business student. You both kind of saw the same problems from your own perspective. Yeah, so before coming back to grad school, I was working in finance. And in the work I was doing, I was seeing a lot of small sums, credit card co-pays, a lot of small doctor bills, just kind of stop people from living their lives and from making progress. $50, $100 would stop people from doing what? One common thing we've seen is anytime you interact with the criminal justice system, whether you're ultimately found innocent or guilty, or you just kind of accumulate court fees. Uh, and that's usually in the range of, say, 62 $200. Even if you do community service, etc., or you're found completely innocent, you uh, still owe these fees and those are non-dischargeable. But without paying off that $200, your record is never cleared. So it'll always come up if a future employer or landlord runs a credit check on you or a you know, background check on you. And so that poses a really big barrier. And you work in the medical field. So this this issue pops up a lot and what you do, right, Pratusha? Yeah, absolutely. Just the cost of transportation to the doctor's appointment, like in Philly, tokens to get to the doctor's office after you are discharged from the hospital ended up being prohibitive for patients I saw. And it would really be things like that I saw patients who had 50 or $60 medical co-pays that they then would have loans on, and it would be really unclear when they were 
actually paying down the loan. Taking loans on $50. And if you can't pay it off, that $50 costs a lot more for these individuals who are already living in poverty. And so you all decided to fix this or at least attempt to provide a piece of a solution by starting the shift fund. What What is the shift fund? Yeah, so the Shift Fund, as you mentioned, is a Philly-based nonprofit where we're seeking to really use small sums, uh, and that's something we define as generally under $500, make a really large impact on someone's life by removing an institutional barrier. By institutional barrier, kind of means something that there's like a like a government barrier or some other social barrier that's preventing someone from moving forward. The first case we funded was a young man who was ultimately arrested at the age of 14 uh, for being a participant in a robbery. He was found not to be guilty. But at the very end of his trials and tribulations, he had $60 left of court fees. But because he couldn't pay that $60, he was forced to stay on probation. And when you're on probation, you have to keep on senior probation officer for a crime he didn't commit right absolutely like this was a young man who was in prison missing high school at like a really pivotal time point and then was ultimately found to be innocent but then couldn't was still missing class because he had to Mm. deal with a situation that he wasn't even guilty of and when people hear something like this pratusha they say sixty dollars well why couldn't he just paid a $60. $60 when you don't have it is as much as $6,000. Yeah, these small sums would cause disproportionate barriers for people and end up really multiplying over time, too, because one thing would lead to another. And it would we would see families with, like, traffic tickets that would eventually lead to, like, losing your license because you didn't pay the traffic tickets. And that would lead to losing your job because you couldn't get to work. And it was just like this vicious cycle that we really wanted to try and intervene early if we could. And so you all put your own money in there. And then when you got married, you had all your friends and family donate. Through our own funds, some you know corporate grants and also our wedding registry we raised today around 35000 And that's really due to the generosity of our essentially friends and family. That money, while may not seem like a huge amount, given the the really small sums we're working with, it's allowed us to fund a decent amount of cases and allowed us to continue working with our partner community organizations as well. And who do you guys work with, Pratusha? We work with the YSRP, the Youth Sentencing Reentry Program, which does really great work with youth who are transitioning out of the justice system. We also work with CLS, which is Community Legal Services. Uh, we've worked with the Juvenile Law Center. Uh, we work with Youth Build. Yeah. So we re- we're really trying to, what we realized initially was we had one or two community partnerships and we, so we, re- we realized it was harder than we expected to actually give funds to the people who need it because we would get approached with potential clients and then because of unstable housing situations or like a few clients weren't able to put money back on their phone for the next month and they were just lost to follow up. So we ended up wanting to fund all of these cases. And then people, we'd hear back from our community partners that they've lost touch with a potential client. So we really have been trying to extend our reach to as many community touch points as we can. So basically, community organizations can reach out to the Shift Fund and say, hey, we might have some folks that could use your help. That's right. And it's through our partnership model, we're able to leverage like 
all the great work that's already been done and just kind of come in and pay whatever bill or fee that kind of like the last existing barrier for their existing clients. That's wonderful. And so you guys, I saw you've helped at least 10 people so far on your website and you have a few cases pending now. Um, What's your vision for the Shift Fund? It's kind of twofold. One is in the immediate term, just to continue expanding in the Philly area um, with different organizations and, and ramping up types of cases we fund. I think eventually this is a very scalable model where mm-hmm. there are already like advocates in every community doing awesome work with their clients. And I think Shift can leverage that work in basically every city or every region. So I think long term, we want to take Shift nationally. Yeah. And, and tell me about the impact, Pratusha, because you guys both talked about this individual, 14-year-old, owes 60 bucks. You know, you pay the 60 bucks and it has a it makes a huge difference in their life and that he's able to just be a kid again. It's nice because we've been starting to hear feedback or, or like updates from clients we've supported. Like a similar client who had court fines and fees that ended up preventing her from clearing her record was able to get a job in like in-home nursing and we heard about that recently. And so it's nice to hear feedback from CLS and YSRP about how the clients are doing and how they're able to move forward in life. And I think it's oftentimes like the fines and fees that we're funding are presenting a new barrier for people. And it's not just like keeping them from moving forward, but not being able to pay off that finer fee means actually losing something they have, whether it's a job or being in school or whatever it is that they're doing. And I think that hopefully raising awareness of this, not only and funding these cases not only helps individuals, but also raises awareness and hopefully change policy in a future level. Tell us where people can, number one, community groups that may have cases that you could be of assistance to can reach out to. And then also where if people want to donate and say, hey, you know, I want to add to the fund. So we have a website, shiftfund.gives, where we both have a donation page and also a contact form. And we have actually sourced a decent number of cases through that contact form. So it's definitely there. Please add, please reach out to the Shift Fund if there's you think there's an interesting opportunity for us. Wonderful. And so I just want to say congratulations to you both, young couple. They're not even 30, y'all, okay? Thank you to you both, and good luck on all the work you're doing. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Next up, he's building a diverse leadership for nonprofits. We want to make sure that we not only recommend good people to board, but also equip them to be effective. A local company's relationship with UPenn and its forceful impact. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. The challenges facing business and civic organizations are becoming increasingly more complex, and with race and class at the center of them, diversity is paramount. Well, one consulting company is hoping to fill the void left in leadership by grooming the next generation of leaders and workforce professionals. Diverse Force recruits, trains, and connects talented individuals with businesses, and its recent partnership with the University of Pennsylvania is built building a pipeline of diverse leaders. Here to tell us more is founder and CEO Suleiman Rahman. 
Welcome to the KYW studio. Thank you, Sherry. Glad to be on the show. Yeah, so I have been reading about Diverse Force, and it kept coming up on my LinkedIn, and especially the partnership with Penn. Could you tell me how this developed? We've had a network, uh, UPPN, yes. over the last 10-plus years. That network's over 18,000 professionals throughout the region. Um, our mission has always been to engage, empower, and yeah. connect kind of that next generation of business and civic leadership. In 2017, we launched Diverse Force, kind of an evolution of UPPN. UPPN will continue to do the programming. Diverse Force is more business and you know organization facing and providing solutions to the issue of diversity and inclusion. Diverse Force on boards actually a little over two years ago started a conversation. It was actually uh, uh, Marcus Allen, part of our mm-hmm. advisory board, and having a conversation with him about this concept. And he had some conversations with Fells School of Government over at Penn. And one thing led to another, him and make an introduction that, you know, the conversation moved forward. And last year we started to put together a curriculum to yeah. actually develop diverse talent to sit on nonprofit boards. Around the same time, an article came out by Board Source that talked about the fact that a nonprofit boards are predominantly white led. 86% of board members are white. And the reality is that there's not much diversity on even nonprofit boards that serve a very diverse audience. So there's a level of, you know, leadership, comp, you know, co- cultural competency that needs yeah. to happen at that level. And, you know, with those statistics in mind, understanding that, that many times organizations say they can't find the talent and we just happen yeah, I was to have gonna, I was gonna talk a about large that because network. <laughs> that's a big, you know, you don't just walk onto a board. <laughs> But everybody at every level was saying, well, we don't know anybody. We can't find anybody. And you answer that question like, uh, now you don't have that excuse. <laughs> and so tell me about this curriculum. What exactly do you teach people? Yeah, so it's a seven-month curriculum, six courses. And through the courses, we talk about fiscal responsibility, you know, fiduciary responsibility of the board members. We talk about strategy. We talk about finance and accounting. As a board member, reviewing balance sheets and yeah. financial statements is important. You know, do the, your job the, the, on the board. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a fiduciary responsibility that you have uh, on the board to make sure that they're doing the right things and oversight and everything rises and falls with leadership. And I believe diversity starts at the board level. And we want to equip diverse talent to not only sit on boards, but also be impactful. Many times if you are the minority voice on the board, many times you're going to assimilate to what's happening already. You're going to just conform, equip them to be on the board, to be effective in a way that they can not only come and be effective as a a governing board member, but also to be strategic thought leaders around diversity, around inclusion, as well as the strategic areas that they specialize in as well. Yeah, and sort of give them the confidence. And so I understand you guys have already graduated a class. Yeah, we had a class of 25. Out of the 25, most of them are already connected with nonprofit boards. So they're going through the process of being interviewed and, and meeting, you know, finding out the board is a good fit for them. Ten folks have already just been brought onto new boards already. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have young ladies actually now the chair chairwoman of a board. Wow, already? Uh, already a chairwoman they of the were, board. They were like, come on, uh, we got you now. An, another person now. was asked to be what is a conflict of interest with her yeah. job. What does diversity on a, a nonprofit board do for the organization? You know, one of the value propositions of diversity and inclusion is many studies. You know, McKinsey talks about the fact that organizations that are in the top quartile of diversity are 35 percent more productive and more wow. profitable mm-hmm. than organizations that are in the bottom quartile of diversity. And that's uh, ethnic diversity. Uh, gender diversity is 15 percent. Deloitte, all kinds of studies around diverse teams are more productive. They're more innovative. They're more effective. Yeah. So we need to have that same standard in the nonprofit sector where a lot of our public dollars are going as well as, you know, tax exempt dollars to make sure boards 
are effective from that perspective. Yeah. And then also having diverse talent on these boards is also personal gain for them as well to now be a part of social networks and, and at the table where they typically are not at the table. And there's less corruption. Yeah. That's what I hear too, yeah. because you know, everybody's kind of working because together. Because people come, they don't come yeah. to the old boys network or girls, you yeah. know, and they, they come more prepared. Mm-hmm. They make sure they dot their I's and cross their T's <laughs> and don't come with just blanket ideas because you won't have an echo chamber of people who just agree with all the assumptions and biases you're bringing to the table. So it's good to have constructive conflict yeah. in the boardroom for someone to say, well, I think differently. You have a better outcome at the end at and, the, end and the numbers and, and the solutions. And so for folks who hear that. this and they say, you know what, I've been thinking about it and they want to reach out to you and maybe go through the training or reach out to Diverse Force. Mm-hmm. How do they contact you? Yeah, so they can go to diverseforce.com and we have a contact form that's there as well. It is a selection process. Our program is typically geared towards that mid to senior level executive End of the day, we're looking for that person who's passionate about a cause. Many times there's space somewhere on some boards and making sure that also there's going to be a good gel between those who are part of the cohort. Yeah, great way to serve um, your community being on a nonprofit board. Well, check out diverseforce.com. Suleiman Rahman, I appreciate you and thank you so much for being on Flashpoint and for you know making some change. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, the Apple Podcast app, or whatever platform you use to get your pods. You can search Flashpoint KYW. There's an issue that makes you hot under the collar? Let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Jewish educator, author, and coach Lisa Friedman once said, remember what it's like to be excluded so you can create a community where everyone is included. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.